But in Jesus, we have a permanent priesthood. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to him because he always lives to intercede for them. In Jesus, we have the mediator and the guarantor of a better covenant with a better promise, better hope. But this blessing will be lost if we neglect such a great salvation. If we become ap apathetic, indifferent, discouraged, or go back to our former ways of lives. And this was indeed a danger facing the Jewish believers to whom the writer of the Hebrews wrote. Because of the severe persecution that the Jewish Christians were experiencing, they were looking back to the old Jewish religion. So maybe it would be better for us to go back to the Jewish Judaism. But the author of Hebrews chapter 12 warned them that turning back is not an option. So this chapter, he winds up all the argument showing the superiority of Jesus, the new covenant, the new priesthood, and exhort them to press on and finish the race because there is no other option. So we, we must finish the race well. What must we do so that we can finish the race? We, first of all, we must throw off everything that hinders our race. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses in, to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so e easily strips us up. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. I know some of us are training for marathon. I know that Jonathan Hui is doing it. Maybe some other people as well. Is Carla doing it as well, running? Yeah, so, you know, the marathon, th those who are running marathon, they will never put on a backpack. They will never carry some dumbbells and run the marathon. I bet they will never even finish two kilometers if I give them a pair of 10 kilograms of dumbbell for my garage. And uh, in fact, they will try to wear as light as possible. And yet, you know what? We who are called to run this marathon race of the Christian race, we often are running with weights on our back. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. What are the weights? What are the weights that can slow us down? The weights that can slow us down are, for example, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the love for the world, the love for ease, the love for comfort, and even relationships that are legitimate can hinder us from accomplishing the task God has set for us. You know, when we are so devoted to our wives, or our spouse, or our children, or our grandchildren, that the things of God take the second place. Then this blessed, legitimate relationship can become a weight that hinders our spiritual growth. In every season of our lives, I know that I've been through, there are always things that may prevent us from serving the Lord. Remember, the reason given by those guests that were invited by Jesus, uh, by the king in the parable given by Jesus, I think it's, uh, it's in Luke 14, 16 to 20. L listen to their excuses when they were invited to the banquet of the king. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come to the banquet 
come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come along. If we are not careful, we may be like those guests who make excuses to the king. Lord, uh, I've, just ma- I've just got married. I will resume the race after the honeymoon is over. Lord, I've just begun my career. I need time out. I need time out from the race. I promise to catch up with the race once my career is over, is established. Lord, I've just bought it in our business. Time is important. Time out, please, Lord. Time out. Then there are the children to raise, mortgage to pay, invest more investment properties to purchase. Then, then come the grandchildren to take care. Every season, you know, reason to have time out, Lord, time out. After this time out, I will resume the race. I'll catch up. Retirement can be the best time to spare to serve the Lord, but then we retirees have worked so hard providing for our children, raising them up. Lord, we need time out, please. We need to catch up. We need to catch our breath. We need to relax. We need to see the world. We need to admire your wonderful creation. Friends, these things are legitimate. I'm blessed by themselves. But make sure, make sure they have not become weights that slow us down, that your time out from the race may not become time out forever. See that you do not let this so-called blessing from God hinder you from finishing your race well. Especially, we must strip off every sin. Anything that is sin will really hinder us from finishing the race. What must we do to finish the race well? Number two, we must run with endurance the race God has set before us. Hebrews 12, verse 1b. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. That's the second thing we must do to finish the race well. The race that God has set for us is not an easy race. It is a strenuous race. There will be times when you feel like giving up. Otherwise, the author wouldn't say, run with endurance. It is going to require endurance, perseverance. And any preacher who tells you that you can run the race that God has set before you effortlessly, I think he's being irresponsible. The preachers who say that, you know, Christian life can be very smooth, prosperous all the time, no hardship, is telling you to run a different race. And that's not a race God has set for you. Hebrews 12 verse 1 said, We are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses. These witnesses are here, are God's witnesses in chapter 11. They are the heroes of faith that show us what it means to run the race. What kind of race did they run? What kind of race did those heroes of faith run? Well, first of all, their lives were anything but easy. They all finished their race, though, accomplishing what God has assigned to each of them. That's the key thing. To finish your race well is to accomplish what God has assigned you, what God has set up for you to do. For Moses, or for Noah, he endured relentless ridicule when he was building the ark. But he accomplished the assignment for God. Moses gave up the comfort and the glory of being the son of the Pharaoh's daughter to identify with his people. He accomplished God's assignment for his life to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And the list goes on in Hebrews 11. In fact, the writer of Hebrews summarized 
the race God set before these heroes of faith in this way. Hebrews 11, 33-34 By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into to, to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. They all accomplished what God has assigned to them, the race God has mapped up for them. You know, by attending church regularly every Sunday, it's commendable. You've got to come to the place where you receive grace. But that by itself is not God's definition of running the race God mapped as mapped to us. There's hardly any endurance required by just sitting through a long sermon, although sometimes it requires a bit of endurance when the sermon is a bit long and not too inspiring. Uh, there again, there's always, some, uh, there's always a smartphone to save you. You know, you know. No. <laughs> I know, the trick. <laughs> what must we do so that we can finish the race? Number three, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. Thank you for giving that song. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2-4. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and, pro- and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Why? Well, here are the benefits of keeping our eyes on Jesus. First of all, we will be encouraged to know that Jesus is the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Have you ever wondered why, of all the people in the world, why is it that you have faith in You come to know the Lord. Why is it that you respond with faith when other people don't? Is that because you're more clever? Not cleverer? No. We don't, the only reason is because God, this is the sovereignty of God. God make, made the light of the gospel shine in you. It was Jesus who initiated faith in you in the first place. And it will be Jesus who will bring it to its perfection. He will enable you to run the race and perfect your faith. So look at him. He is our finisher, he is the author and finisher of faith. When you look at him, you get encouraged and you will continue to run the race. What are the benefits of keeping our eyes on Jesus? Well, secondly, we will be motivated by the same motivation of Jesus in enduring hardship. And we read just now that that's the motivation of Jesus when he endured the cross. He said, because of the joy awaiting him, because of the joy awaiting Jesus, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. What? Is that joy? What is that joy said before Jesus that Jesus endured the cross? Hebrews 12, uh, 2 verse 10. That's the joy set before Jesus for which he was willing to suffer the pain of the cross. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering, a perfect leader to f- fit to bring them into their salvation. You see, what motivated the Son of God to become man, to die on the cross, is to bring you and me into glory. That's all. For the joy of seeing all of you in glory, Jesus was prepared to pay the ultimate price, the most horrible death to, to go through the most horrible suffering you can ever think of. 
And that was the joy set before him. In the same way, you know, that's, the pa- that's, why we, that's why I'm passionate about evangelism. For the joy of seeing my friends that I, I enjoy talking with one day, be there with me, you know, just fellowshipping, you know, the joy of, of bringing them to glory in heaven. We should share the same passion that Jesus, that, that, that motivated Jesus to die on the cross. But there is yet another joy set before us to motivate us to run this race with endurance. God bestow glory and honor to well, God will be God will bestow glory and honor to us when we cross the finishing line. For just as Jesus was exalted and glorified after he endured the cross, being seated now beside the throne of God, we too will be glorified after we have endured our crosses. As Romans 8.17 tells us, And since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share His glory, we must also share His suffering. Why do we keep our eyes on Jesus? Because we will be comforted by the fact that Jesus is now seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. Look at Him now in glory, seated beside the throne of God, seated there as the great high priest, as a high priest, as a priest and as a king enthroned there. Just like like Melchizedek, priest and king. You see, as you look at Jesus now seated there as our priest, we are encouraged to know that Jesus understands the weaknesses, the fears, the temptation we face in running the race set before us. We can take comfort that Jesus, our high priest, lives forever to intercede for us day and night as we face our struggles in life. And not only is Jesus there, here now, interceding for us, sympathetic to our, all our trials, share our sorrow and grief. He's the enthroned king. He reigns forever. He is the king over the storms of life. And if this king is for us, who can be against us? What circumstances can overwhelm us? Through fire, no fear. Through water, no fear. He is the king over the fire of life, over the storm of life, over the flood of life, over the tsunami of life. What's the, ben- what's the fourth benefit of keeping our eyes on Jesus? We will be able to put our suffering in the proper perspective. Compare your suffering with Jesus' suffering. Right. Who, su- who has ever suffered as much as Jesus? No one. You see? We can never fathom the extent of the physical and emotional pain and the horror of being totally forsaken. The physical suffering was painful. Emotional pain and suffering was severe for Jesus. But you know what? The worst suffering to me was the fact that he was totally forsaken all alone in that moment of darkness. Not only were the friends not there to support him, but his his father, his father, has to turn his face against him because he bore our sin. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? None of us will ever have to go through that kind of God-forsaken feeling. You may have gone through a lot of pain, but be sure, you know for sure, you will not be forsaken because Jesus, the Good Shepherd, will be there to walk through even the darkest valley, see you through, and you will always be surrounded by, by friends, the Christian, the church, and so on. So that will put your suffering in the proper perspective when we see Jesus suffering on the cross. Why we must move? We must move on. What must we do to f- finish the race well? Number four, we must recall God's fatherly words of encouragement in times of trials. Hebrews twelve five to eleven. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you 
as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are not, it means that you are illegitimate and you are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirit and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. You know, God is always speaking to us. Not in audible, not in audible voice. Rarely, rarely will He speak to us in audible voice. But always through His written word, the Bible. When we are in the midst of our severe trial, when we are really going through times of confusion, we, we long to hear God's heavenly voice. We say, God, if only I can hear from you, if only I can just know that you're listening to me, if only I can, you can just tell me that you love me. Just, I want to hear that voice. Still small. Just tell me you love me. Tell me that you are in it with me now. I, f I feel you are so far away, Lord. Speak to me. <coughs> Friends, when you're thinking about that, uh, let me assure you that the truth is God is actually speaking to you all the times. But you got to recall His word. He, has, he speaks to you through the written word. You don't have to go to so-called prophets to speak over you. My friend, you can go. I, you have my blessing to go and search for all the prophets to speak over you. But my friend, you just have to recall God's word of encouragement is already there here. When you're in trouble, read this, read this few verses. He's telling you this is a timeless word of encouragement to you at all times. God will never change these words. When you're in trouble, remember this word. He has spoken, he keeps speaking through the written word here. But in order to recall God's word of encouragement, you must know the Bible well. I sometimes feel very sad and that a church, a lot of Christians are Bible illiterate. Maybe we have been used to 3.7, you know, a big devotional thing, you feel good. But maybe we need Sunday school for adult, adult Bible Sunday school. A full, solid one hour, adult Bible Sunday school. Go through all the verses, expound it, and bring out the meaning. As I'm trying to do now. <laughs> the Bible is completely sufficient to address all your situation in life at every season of your life. Question is, do you know the Bible? Have you been studying the Bible regularly? Do you have time to quiet down and recall the words of God when you are in trouble? When you're in trouble, you could get out for. Uh, please pray for me. Ah, please pray. Of course, you can ask that people pray for you. Go and say, what have I learned from the Bible? Where, where do I learn about the Bible? Uh, if, if I'm in trouble, where do I go? Which passage? Hebrews 12. Here, this verse you can read. And other places. What are God's words that encourage you to us? God said, we must recall God's encouragement words. But what are God's encouraging words? Well, this is how God encourages. God encourages us to have the right response to His discipline. God said, well, this is how I encourage you when you're in trouble. You're in trouble? I'm encouraging you to have the right response. Have the right response. Do not make lights of the Lord's discipline. 
What does it mean by make light of the Lord's discipline? What does it mean? I try to explain to you the verses because I'm teaching you like Sunday school, adult Sunday school class. What does it mean of by of what does it mean to say that to make lights of the Lord's discipline? Well, it is first of all to ign- to ignore to ignore the signs that God may be displaying you through the hardship or difficulties you're facing. So you need to be still when you have a lot of problems. Why am I having all this problem? Why am I all this pain? Why are things go against are going against me? Lord, can what can I learn from this situation? Could it be that I should change my ways? Maybe I'm too busy with God, wrong priorities, too critical towards people, indulging in some doubtful habits. During the time of the prophet Haggai, the, pro- the people of God were having some lean times. They sold a lot, they get nothing. They invested a lot, they got meagre return. Why? Then God spoke to them through prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your way. Listen, this is a wake-up call. This is my warning to you. I give you all the hardship. It is a wake-up call. Give careful ways to, give careful thoughts to your way. Examine yourself. Examine your life. They were too busy building their own houses. They neglect the house of the Lord. It is the wrong priority that was the reason for their material and spiritual leanness. So, what does it mean to make lights of God's discipline? It is to ignore the warning from the Lord. And secondly, it is to refuse to change our way. To ignore the warning and to, ref- and to refuse to change our way. When we know that God is pointing His finger at those areas of our ways that need to be changed. Okay, so the right response to God's discipline is, secondly, do not lose heart. Don't give up when God corrects you. Facing hardship may cause some Christians to wonder, what's the point of being a Christian? You know, sometimes you look at your Christian life. You know, we try, we, we, we try to do the right thing, we are Christian, and yet sometimes we face more problems than people in the world, which is true, of course. The race done by the people of the world is very easy. They don't have, they have no qualms to swindle. They have no qualms to cut into your, cut into a lane when you're trying to drive. They don't worry about that. They, it, so you're wondering, is it worth it to continue in this narrow way of the cross? Especially when you're in, in, in trouble. Say, Lord, I've served you for all these years and now I've got all this trouble. Lord, is it worth it? If you are giving up, what the Lord said, do not lose heart. If you try to give up, this is the voice of the devil. God never discourage, discourage you. The devil will. God will only encourage you. Say, don't give up. Don't give up. Do not lose heart when he disciplines you. Number three, do not doubt God's love. For the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes each one He accepts as His child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as His own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by His Father? If God doesn't discipline you as He does all His children, it means you are illegitimate and are not really His children at all. It is natural to doubt that God still loves you when you are going through pain and suffering. When God does not seem to hear your prayer, if God loves me, why does He allow me to suffer so much? Is a common response. Why does He not respond to me right now? Is a common response. We begin to doubt. God, do you really love me? See, you must not depend on your feeling. You must still trust only God's word. And what does God's word say? God's word say here that 
it is precisely the hardship that God allows to fall upon you that is the evidence that God cares and loves you and is treating you as His children. God is saying, I know you may not think it, you may not, you find hard to believe, but it's precisely the hardship that you are experiencing that is the evidence that I'm loving you, I'm disciplining you. I don't enjoy, no father enjoys disciplining their children. In fact, people, father will tend to take the, especially grandfather won't like to discipline anybody. It's just grandparents, you know. Give it discipline to the parents. Nobody wants to discipline. But that is not love. So, then, what's the great response to hardship? Endure hardship as divine discipline. As you endure this divine discipline. See, this is a divine discipline. You know, hardship is not random. Hardship is not accidental. Nothing happened by chance to your life. Nothing happened. God can prevent any. If something happened to you, God has allowed it to happen. If hardship falls upon you, it is not random. It is a divine discipline. Recognize it, hardship, and enjoy it. But more than enduring it, you should submit. Submit willingly. We surrender to our Father's discipline and live. Since we respected our earthly Father who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirit and live forever? For our earthly Father disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening; it's painful. But afterward, there will be a painful har- there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So, better than enduring, but submit. To submit to God's discipline is to do so do so with a spirit of humility. With the spirit of surrender, Lord, I submit to you. I humble myself under your discipline in surrender. You know, personally, I came to the con- when I came to the conclusion that the Lord was going to take away, or the Lord was not going to heal my wife, Abby, on this side of heaven, but that he was going to take her away. I struggled a lot. But I humbly, finally, I humbly submitted to God's will, I said, Lord, I surrender to you. And just shortly, a few days later, the Lord took her home, completely healed, no more pain, no more suffering. Joyful, forever resting joyfully in the presence of the Lord in heaven. See, submit. Submit willingly. God's discipline. The correct response to the correction of our Father is to trust that God has a good purpose in disciplining us. He has a good purpose. You know, our Father is a perfect Father. He knows exactly how to discipline you and the extent of the discipline, not too hard, not too, hard, not too heavy and not too light, just the right amount to bring out the maximum good in you. Our earthly fathers were doing their best. They knew when they disciplined us but the earthly father may not know what is best for his children. They may not know what's the best way of dis- disciplining the children. Sometimes they discipline them out of anger, frustration. Sometimes they can be too soft. Sometimes they can be too harsh to provoke their children. But not so. Our heavenly father knows exactly how to bring out the good purpose, how to bring out the good in us. He has a good purpose in disciplining us. God's good purpose in discipline, in using hardship as a means of disciplining us is that we, number one, might share in His holiness. That's basically it. The ultimate good, the ultimate good of every Christian is not how much more material you have, how much more investment property you have, how much bigger my super will be. No. The ultimate good that God wants in all His children is Holiness, to share in His holiness. And what is holiness? It's not to be very religious, to always say the religious jargon. No, that's too boring. 
be holy is to be like Jesus. You see Jesus walk along the street, everybody wants to hang around him. If you find that you're so religious that nobody says, oh, look, this is a very religious Christian, very pious, you know, and they ran away from you, how are you going to witness to them? To be holy, to share in his holiness, is to be like Jesus, warm, authentic, interesting, even with a sense of humor. People will see that, that, you're, that something is different. You're caring, you're loved, ever willing to help people with sincerity, not hypocritical, not a pretend, not to appear to be holy, holy. No, a real. See, let people see Jesus in you. That's what, that's what God disciplined us for this purpose. And unless all of us share in Jesus' holiness, be like Jesus, if we can all be Jesus and go out, there's so many Jesus going all around, people get impacted. The way we treat them. That we might produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. That's a good purpose of disciplining us. Harvest of righteousness and peace. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Why do you think pain and suffering can produce a harvest of righteousness and peace? Is that logical? That pain and suffering can produce, may produce, a harvest of peace and righteousness. How is it so? How can suffering lead to a harvest of peace and righteousness? With one condition. If you are willing to be trained, only for those who have been trained by it. And there are people who are not willing to be trained by it. They got discipline, they got hardship from God. They walk away from God. They get angry with God. I'm not going to have nothing to do with the church. I'm not going to attend self-good anymore. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to have anything to do. They don't have they won't produce a harvest of peace and righteousness. But those who are willing to submit to God's training after they've been trained, after they come out of that severe trial, you see a harvest of peace and righteousness. You can see that. You can see the change in them. Wow, you're different now. What happened? That's what we read here. God's purpose is to bring out this. First Peter said, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourself with the same attitude we had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You, if you have suffered physically with Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your life chasing your own desire, your own dream, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You see, severe trial will shake us to the very core of our being. Suffering and pain make you refocus your life like nothing else. It causes you to examine your priorities. That happened to me when the Lord shook me to my very core. Nothing seemed important to me anymore. What seemed important to you no longer seemed significant. And this was what happened to the founder of the giant tech company, Apple. Steve Jobs was lying on the hospital bed, dying on the hospital bed. In the last hours of his life, he said all his accomplishments, all his fame seemed so insignificant. But sadly, for Steve Jobs, the founder of the first trillion, trillion dollar company listed, it's too, it was all too late to refocus his life on what is really significant in life. Yes, suffering makes us realize that the only way to live our lives, the only way to live our lives is to live it the way God requires us to do. Suffering leads lead us to recommit ourselves to righteous living, that is, to live the way God requires us to live, to have the right priorities, to have the right attitude to all things, to have the right to treat people in the right way, the way God wants us to treat them, being kind, patient, loving, sincere. You know, peace is related to right uh, to righteousness, righteous living. They're connected. In fact, righteous living lead to peace. 
when you know that the way you live your life is the way God wants you to live your life, when you know the way you treat people is the way God wants you to treat people, when you're doing that, you know you're walking in the perfect will of God, you know God is very pleased with you. You have the peace with God. You have peace with man. Nobody quarrels with you. And you have peace with yourself. You know, I'm doing exactly what the Father wants me to do. And that's why righteousness will hold on to peace. And you have the harvest of peace. Righteousness and peace. And you, the peace also comes not because you know you're right, walking in the right relationship with God, and you're doing what God wants you to do. You're pleasing God in every way. But the peace comes because you know that God has brought you through all this. Through it all. God has brought me through the most severe of trials. I know I can trust Him. He has brought me through more than, conquer, more than a conqueror. And He will do it again. I can face any future trial, hopefully not, coming my way. I can face any future trial again because I know He will do it again. What must we do so that we can finish the race? We must help others to finish the race. We must help others. See, not alone, running alone. We are in this race together. The goal of running the race is not to be the first one to cross. God, does, God doesn't give you first prize for running first. God wants us to help those who are slow runners to cross the finishing line. We are a community. We must make sure no one fails to cross the line. What must we do to help others to run the race well? By setting the example of running well. Setting the good example. Be inspiring. Hebrews 12, 12 to 14. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who were weak who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. In other words, we must overcome any sense of weariness. We must be strong ourselves. We must not show that we are weary. We must not go about, oh, you know, this race is so hard. No. We got to run sturdily. We got to run straight towards the goal. We make the straight path for ourselves to inspire the weaker one, the lame, so they become strong. We got to be VIP, very inspiring people. And you hang around VIP, become you become strong. We got to be inspiring people by example. Number two, we must, how do we help others to run the race? We must promote the culture of peace and holiness in the church. You know, the culture of a church is important. If the church, the culture is that of promoting peace, and holy, everybody pursuing peace. Everybody pursuing holiness. Everybody talk about this. Be like Jesus. And not talk about, you know, hey, when are we going to do this again? Hey, you know, those things that are legitimate, but not really that important. The culture is important. Promote that culture of pursuing peace and holiness. We must correct wayward runners. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright at the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. There will always be bad influence in anywhere in a church. And there are two examples. One is known, one is said to be a, a bitter, bitter root. It came from Deuteronomy 9, 29, 18. I'm making this covenant with you so that no one among you, no man, woman, clan or tribe will turn away from the Lord our God to worship these gods of other nations. And so that no root among you bears bitter and poisonous fruit. Here you are. No root among you bears bitter and poisonous fruit. What are these people who bear bitter and poisonous fruit? They are the people who worship idols. They turn away from the living God. They worship idols. And here in the church, 
we don't have physical idols, but we can be worshipping other gods. We may profess that we are worshipping the true and living God. We may even worship the Lord. But in our heart, we have idols. Anything that is more important to you than God, anything that you treasure more than God, any relationship that you treasure more than God, that is your idol. And, even, and, 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 and if it's affecting others, then it is a bitter root that produces a poisonous fruit. And that will, that will influence other people to also become worldly. And the second type of bad influence is the one like Esau. And what is, what is, what is Esau like? Esau traded his birthrights for one single stew, one single soup. That's all. He's the type of people who are willing to jeopardize the blessing of God, who are willing to jeopardize eternal blessing for the present satisfaction of his physical appetite. You know, who say, who care about eternal blessing? I live for the present. The present is more important. These are Esau. And there can be Esau-like Christian in church. What they, what they want is just the present. Enjoy the present. Enjoy the present. And they don't really live for the eternal blessing of God. And these two are the influences that we must correct and check. What must we do so that we can finish the race? We must keep reminding ourselves of the blessing of the new covenant. You know, it's incredible sometimes we forget how blessed we are under the new covenant. Who wants to be under the old covenant? Look at the contrast. This is, this is what old covenant is like, summarized in the encounter of the Jewish people with God at Mount Sinai. He said, I forgot which one already. Somebody will <laughs> you have to keep up with my PowerPoint, please. Hebrews 12, 18 to 21. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai, for they heard an awesome trumpet blast, a voice so terrible they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I'm terrified and trembling. Two things. Two things about the Old Covenant summarized here. Number one, there was no voice of grace, but the voice terrified. There was no, God's presence was unapproachable. The distance between God and man was infinite. How incredible blessing we are. We take for granted. Now, let's look at New Testament blessing, New Covenant. No, you have not, you have not come to the physical mountain. You, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. These are all meaning heaven. And to countless thousands of angels in the joyful gathering, you have come to the assembly of the firstborn of the firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God Himself who is the judge over all things. You have come to the Spirit of the Righteous One in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying of vengeance like the blood of Abel. First, a quick explanation of some of the term. Well, the, firstborn the assembly of the firstborn children refer to the church, all the believers. And then the, um, the spirit of the righteous one in heaven who have now been made perfect because of the Jesus' blood pre-Christian righteous people like Noah, Abel. But now they have been made perfect after Jesus died on the cross. So the blood of Jesus worked backwards and made them perfect. And they will be there in heaven together with the New Testament church. All the believers of all ages will be there. And they'll be there. And there'll be Jesus who mediates this new covenant for us and his blood speaks of forgiveness, so that the God who is the judge of all has become God our Father. And the voice no longer terrifies us as a judge, but encourages us like a father. And that is our destination. That is our glorious 
We are journeying towards that celestial city. And we are already at the threshold. We are already within the gate. Heaven is in our heart. We know we are there. It's accessible to us. We will be there when we finish the race. Heaven awaits us when we finish the race. What must we do so that we can finish the race well? We must be prepared for the inevitable shaking by God. Hebrews 12, 25, 27. Take, cheer up, we're almost finished. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Once more, he will shake again. He said, he's God said that. God, God said he once again. When, where did God say, once again I will shake? Where did God make that promise of shaking? It found in Haggai. Uh, Haggai 2, 6-7. For this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. In just a little while, I will again shake the heavens and the earth, the oceans and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of he heaven's army. God will shake the earth, earthly community, the people of the world. God will shake all the nations of the world. But God will also shake heaven, including the community of the kingdom of heaven. God will even shake believers. And the shaking of God can take place in your season of life. Yes, any season of life, God can shake you up. Remember Job? He was cruising around. He was cruising along, prosperous, and then the shaking took place. And the shaking could have come through hardship caused by devil. But God can use the hardship caused by devil to do sh the shaking you up. Now what's the purpose of God shaking you? It's to show what remains in you. What is it in you that remains unshakable when God shakes you up? Well, Sharing with you with my experience, when I was shaken up through the last two years with all this trial, when my, my, my wife was called home, this shaking made me realize that everything on earth, everything on earth that I hold as dear, whether material, relationship, can be shaken. Everything may be taken from me, even my treasure, my delight, my wife. Even my wife can be taken from me. Everything can be shaken, taken off from me. Everything must therefore be held on open arm, open hands, in surrender to God. I must not hold tight to anything. The shaking of God in my life had revealed to me what really matters to me, what can never be shaken from me, and what are the things unshakable things that remain after the Lord showed me like that. First of all, my faith in the Lord remains. I still have this unshakable faith in the Lord. My love and passion for the Lord still remain. My love for God is unshakable. These two things remain. You know, God will shake you up. To reveal whether you have anything left when He shake, shake you up. Would the gold will the thing that he refine you be, still be there for your gold or it dissolves to nothing because there was not any gold in it. And that's where your faith will be tested. One day you'll be shaken up. I don't know when. I never expected this shaking. But it, it revealed to me that, yes, thank you, Lord, I still I have two things unshakable. My faith in you, my love for you, my passion for you, the kingdom. There will be a mighty shaking at the end, second coming. God is saying, I'm going to do a mighty shaking. When Christ comes again, all the financial system, all the commercial system, all the trade system, forget about trade war, 
everything will be shaken up. Wall Street, the food seat, London food stock exchange, German, Germany stock exchange, Australian stock exchange, Singapore stock exchange, everything will be shaken. You think GFC was the real shaking up? You ain't seen anything yet. As the American like to say those words. If even creation, even nature itself will be shaken up. Even nature. Right now we're seeing the beginning of the great shakening of the nature, don't you think so? I mean, think of the unprecedented, record-breaking heat waves of the heat, bushfires. I don't know. But one thing, after all this shaking, we will see that there's only one that cannot be shaken. That is the unshakable kingdom of God. Since we, have, since we are receiving a kingdom, Hebrew 12, 28, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and ple please God by worshipping Him with holy fear and awe. And that makes me bring me to the last point. What must we do to finish the race well? We must cultivate a lifestyle of worshipping God with thankfulness and reverential awe like Andrew led us this morning. A lifestyle. Not just on Sunday morning. Every morning you walk, every morning you go to gym, every morning, everywhere you go, in your workplace. A lifestyle of thanking God, thank, worshipping God with your, with, your, with your attitude, with your word, with your lifestyle, with the way you treat people. A lifestyle of worshipping God with thankfulness with, and reverence and awe. That such an awesome God give us the incredible blessing of inheriting the unshakable kingdom. Think about that. If we, if we appreciate, if we truly appreciate how blessed we are, that we are the citizen of this unshakable kingdom, whatever happened to you, all this temporary disappointment, all that you would lose in life, even your most precious relationship, is only temporary compared to the eternal glory that awaits us. So finally, let me conclude just to summarize, otherwise we might forgot everything going through all these points. The Christian life is both a marathon race and a journey to the city of God. A marathon race and a journey to the city of God where eternal glory and blessing await us, awaits us. Sadly, let me repeat. Also, Hebrews said, not everyone makes it because not everyone has real faith. Some drop out of the race because of hardship. Some drop out of the faith because of love for the world. Some have simply run the wrong race. Maybe they're misled by the wrong preachers. I don't know. It could, you could run the wrong race. It may not be the race God has marked out for you. So what must we do then to finish the race? We must throw off everything that hinders our race, especially sin. Many things can sh slow us down in every season of life. We must, secondly, run with endurance the race God has set before us. The race God has set before us is to become holy and righteous like His Son is to accomplish the assignment God has given us. It's not easy, but it's worth it. Thirdly, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. Then we'll be encouraged to know that we have a champion who initiated our faith and will perfect our faith. And you'll be there with us throughout our journey as a priest and a king. We must recall God's fatherly words of encouragement we must help one another to run the race. We must keep reminding ourselves of the immense blessing of the new covenant. We must be prepared for the inevitable shaking of God. We must cultivate the lifestyle of worshipping God with thankfulness and reverence and awe. Dear friends, the race you are running now is not a trial run. It is the final race. You have only one life to give, one life to live, one race to run. The race God has marked out for you and me. So, may I exhort all of us, run with endurance the race set before us. It is infinitely worth it. Father God, we thank you for this great 
exaltation from your chapter 12. We pray that we may heed your word and run the race set before us, the race that you have marked up for us with endurance, that all of us may finish the race together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you just want to be upstanding, we'll close with a word of prayer. Thank you very much for that, Pastor Ben. That was a wonderful blessing and a wonderful challenge for us as, as a church. I shall draw me in prayer, and then we'll share in, in our morning tea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that we have heard from your servant this morning. We thank you that we have in Christ a kingdom that is unshakable. We thank you that we find security, hope, encouragement, discipline, everything that we need to live this life of godliness because it is in you and in you alone. And so we close with the words from the writer of Hebrews, seeing how we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. May we as a church lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, we commit ourselves to you this day. May we have a vision that is directed at you and at you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. We would love to pray for you this morning or this afternoon. Please come on down the front if you want to be prayed for uh, while we carry on with today. Thank you.